The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. What is going on, Bengals fans? It is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. We are coming live to you here on this beautiful Friday afternoon here, at least in downtown Cincinnati. Hope the weather is nice for you guys as well, wherever you may may be, wherever you may be listening to, whether it's live or pre or after the fact. We are very glad to have you here. I am back in my usual recording studio, also known as my bedroom. I got my good buddy Randall behind me. Um Returning a little bit back to normalcy as we kind of traverse through this this whole pandemic situation, but it's good to see it's good to be back in the normal atmosphere. But uh, this the listener questions edition um, of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I am right for now, at least doing it solo. Uh, my co-host Anthony had an important matter to get to, and we just had to go for a last second audible. But no worries, the structure of this episode will stay the same, and it'll just be me. And I guess Randall as well. He's going to answer some questions as well that you guys may have. So let's just let's just go right into. It. We had a couple of uh, uh, texts into the show beforehand, so we're going to get to one of those uh, real quickly. Um, first one is from Antonio. He says, "Hi, my name is Antonio Cincinnati. I have a question for you guys. We've been we've seen several teams this offseason update their uniforms. Do you think that new uniforms are being discussed in the Bengals' plans? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think we've kind of already talked about this topic a little bit. Um, yeah, this, this is a crazy year for new uniforms. I think five teams actually got brand new uniforms this year and a couple others like the Colts and the Patriots basically altered theirs or just slight alterations and whatnot. I just think, I don't think my opinion on this is going to change. I think that the Bengals before the year 2023 are going to have new uniforms. It could happen in 2021. It could happen in 2022, or it could happen in 2023. I think the official ruling on that is that you have to give the NFL at least two years advance notice that you know you want new new designs, and you have to give whatever designer that you're going to use that amount of time to come up with something. But obviously, they don't have to release that information to the public until whatever they want to. They could announce they're going to have uniforms the offseason that they unveil those new, those new uniforms. So I think right now, the plan should be and probably is that within the first few years of Joe Burrow's tenure as the Bengals quarterback, he will be donning a new uniform for the Bengals, whether that's new as 
a brand new design or something that honors you know the 90s teams or the 80s teams or maybe that 97 to, to uh, 2002 uh, alteration of what the 90s uniforms was me personally I, I think if they go brand new a type of bold new design it's probably going to be met with discomfort because that's kind of the nature of these things now if a team like the Rams, for example goes out with something that's like bold and like brand new that you know is trying to like change it up a lot uh it's usually met with just general dislike from the fan base so if the Bengals are smart they stick to something basic that resembles that of like the 80s and the 90s uniforms but i think at the same time they have to get like a new like some some form of new twist on it to at least make sure that it's not ex- exactly a carbon copy of those. Because when you get new uniforms, I think that should be an evolution of what you once were, and it should be something that speaks that of originality towards the the players that are wearing these uniforms instead of just taking the '80s and '90s and putting them back on, you know, the current uniform. So that's that's where I, I stand. I think Anthony would have similar thoughts on that as well. But I do think within the next you know three or four years, we will see the Bengals have new uniforms. We're gonna go to the the YouTube comment section here from Dalton Live say from uh, actually the Facebook comment section. The Bengals addressed the linebacker position in the draft. They added Josh Bynes and picked up Austin Calatro, who they signed off waivers. Do you all think this changes how much the team uses Sean Williams and Von Bell as hybrid type linebackers in certain situations? That's an interesting question. I think with Williams right now, they just see him as their third safety. They can rotate him in and out with either Jesse Bates or Von Bell. When they have two safeties on the field, when they go into quote unquote big nickel, they can use all three of those safeties in different ways because I think any of those three guys, you're you're comfortable either playing in the box or playing in those two deep cover two shells. I think with Williams specifically, we've talked about this in the past, he's best utilized as a cover two safety. The closer he gets up to the box, the more indecisive he gets in run defense, that he takes bad angles. He's not the greatest man-to-man cover guy in those situations, that's where Von Bell really thrives. So if you want to have those big nickel situations where you have three safeties on the field, you have Von Bell kind of in that upwards position as, as your box safety, if you will. He can match up against tight ends. He can match up against hook routes in those hook and curl zones. Then you have Sean Williams, Jesse Bates kind of working together as your two cover two safeties. But yeah, I think w- with Von Bell now, I-, I think you still have linebackers you you know of that you're comfortable with in those type of um, cover situations and I think Bell has the athleticism and the the physicality to handle some of those route concepts over the middle and can take care of some of those things so yeah I think the, the Bell addition uh, answers the big question about that in case they may not be comfortable with adding Logan Wilson into that personnel group even though he has the potential to, to do that so that, that's kind of that's kind of where I stand on that uh, we're going to go back to the YouTube comment section where I think Mark Fry had a question. He says, how much room for error does Zach Taylor have this season? Surely the organization won't tolerate a second two and 14 season. Um, That's very true. I think if Zach Taylor and the Bengals go two and 14 this season, you're legitimately wondering if he gets fired because I think for the most part, like everybody expects this team to improve. Like Vegas expects it. They were 0-8 in close score games. Teams who are that unlucky in one season, they almost statistically have to do better the next year. And it just goes beyond just simple luck in that sense. Like even if they did nothing at all this offseason, if they kept Andy Dalton as their quarterback, if they kept the majority of the roster the same, if they, if they didn't go out and spend over $100 million in free agency, if they did none of that, 
the likelihood that they do better than two and fourteen is are is already pretty decent. All right, the, the schedule is not I wouldn't say easier or harder than last year. They have a quote unquote last place schedule, but that only matters for I think two of the games, at least in the AFC schedule. Like they they play a tough conference in the NFC. They, they, they have some tough games on the road. They have some tough games at home this year. Like the, the it's going to be a, a tough road to finish anywhere around or above five hundred. And if they do that, they exceed basically all rational expectations that I think all of us should have. But to go two and fourteen again or worse with everything that they did on top of the fact that they mathematically have to progress based off just recent history of this phenomenon, like Zach Taylor probably might get fired, probably will get fired if he goes two and fourteen and one or one and fifteen again. And I know that's a, a, such a drastic shift and a change from holding on to Marvin Lewis for sixteen years after no playoff wins, but. For them to do everything that they did this offseason and for them to not see a single game improvement, I, I, I think that that does not bode well for Zach Taylor. If, if they go 3 and 13, 4 and 12, that's still technically an improvement, but it's definitely not the amount of improvement that I think they want to see. Anywhere above five wins, five wins or above, I think Zach Taylor is automatically safe. I think that's, you know, a three game improvement. It's not, it's obviously not where they want to be. But I think they would have shown enough good things where, you know, it, it, it becomes a, a do or a do or die situation in year three for that for hit for Zach Taylor. So anywhere below five wins, I think you're in the, you're in that conversation. But yeah, if they go in two and fourteen again, I just I'm I'm just not sure about that. We're gonna go back to Facebook here for the comment section. Maggie McGee is asking, will the Bengals beef up the offensive line? I don't know, man. I, I think. It's weird because I don't want to throw out any certainties about what this team will or won't do in terms of roster acquisitions and talent acquisition on the open market. Uh, a situation like Larry Warford, we talked about it. it. It makes sense on certain levels, but it also kind of goes against what they they think about Xavier Suofila. They think about the offensive line in general. I think Warford is the closest thing to an obvious upgrade that they would realistically look at and at least consider. But if they're not willing to go out and get a guy like Warford, it's hard to it's hard to legitimately think about any other type of sorry a motorcyclist ramp by me. It's hard to think about any other type of acquisition that makes sense for them to start ahead over the guys that they want to develop. They want to see Michael Jordan out there starting at left guard. They want to at least give Suafilo a legitimate chance to start at right guard. That's just what we've been hearing for the past two months. It's not like they just look at Suafilo and think he's just a backup that, that has to start. No, they, they view him as a starter based off of the things that, that, that he put on tape for the past two years with Dallas, even though it's at a new position that he's never played before. So it's kind of odd that they're really confident to just throw him in that position. But I mean, that's the reason why they didn't draft a tackle in the draft. That's the reason why they didn't sign a tackle. And when in free agency, when all the good ones are still available right now, I think they have eight guys that they're comfortable, at least in making this roster and five of those guys who they're comfortable in starting and from left to right, you go Jonah Williams, Michael Jordan, Trey Hopkins, Suafilo, and for now, Bobby Hart. Maybe Fred Johnson changes things. Maybe he, presumably in an in even competition with Bobby Hart, he proves to be the better option there. And Bobby Hart becomes your swing tackle. But for now, I think Johnson's the guy that they like on both sides. They can give him depth there. And then Hakeem Adeniji, who they just drafted in the sixth round, he gives you versatility all over the line. He only played left tackle in college, but... Down at the senior bowl, he played left guard and right guard exclusively. And I think he looked a little more comfortable there. Maybe he has the body type and the athleticism 
to succeed more on the inside rather than to handle you know the, the length of your guys on the outside. So those seven guys, and then Bob, and then excuse me, Billy Price, who really is the only guy that they have on the roster with experience at center, aside from Trey Hopkins. So you, you would think that they would want to have a guy on the fifty-three who has experience in backing up, you know, that 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 position because not every interior offensive lineman can be inserted in center. Obviously, Billy Price is not a good football player, and who knows if he ever will be. But for now, I think they like him as that eighth guy, and and maybe they keep nine. Maybe they go ahead and keep Alex Irvin. Maybe they have one of these undrafted guys in Clay Cordasco or um, the Iowa State guy who I still have not remembered his name yet. But right now, it looks like eight or nine guys, including Redmond, seems to be the case. And I'm just not I'm just not entirely sure that they're they're, they're interested in, in getting any outside help. So yeah, that's kind of where I think where they stand there. Uh, we're going to go to the Cincy Jungle comments section, which you can find um, this video in an article form. Uh, we got TC from Dove V, who's a frequent listener of the show. He's asking, of the three rookie linebackers drafted, Logan Wilson, Akeem Davis-Gaither, Marcus Bailey, who has the best rookie season? So what's interesting about this is that I think yesterday, uh, Alex Marvarez, I think it's, I'm, I'm saying his name right, he's an NFL insider, he was talking to Marcus Bailey, who said he's now seven and a half months removed from his surgery, repairing his torn ACL that he tore early in the 2019 season. And he said he's on track to be able to participate in all drills and, and the preseason as soon as when, whenever that comes around, full contact and everything. So it's basically the same timeline you're, you're talking about Rodney Anderson from last year, who unfortunately retore his ACL, but hopefully that's not the case with Bailey. If he's healthy, if Bailey's healthy, I think he will prove to be a more effective player earlier than a guy like Akeem Davis-Gaither maybe. I think if you had compared those two guys with a level playing field in terms of health, because Davis-Gaither had some injury issues too that affected him in the draft process, but he might be a more talented guy than Davis-Gaither. He was drafted three rounds later. And then you're comparing him to a guy like Logan Wilson, who unfortunately didn't have as much experience against top competition like Marcus Bailey did. But I think if Bailey's healthy, he has an equal chance to, to prove his worth against those three guys. I think right now, when you're talking about draft status and overall health and the ability to contribute immediately, Logan Wilson has the has the, the upper advantage based off what we know right now because it's still May and we're not even close to even putting on pads yet, uh, along with all the pandemic stuff. So I think Logan Wilson might be the safer bet for this question. It's just who has the best rookie season because right now he's the, the safest bet to take the most snaps. But Marcus Bailey, I think, has it, almost an equal shot is, as long as he makes it through the preseason healthy. I think once he steps on the field and proves that he can stay on the field, and that they don't have to worry about, you know, handcuffing him for a number of snaps in, in, in case, you know, he suffers another injury. I think he's talented enough to, to take the snaps that Logan Wilson may, may be having right now. But right now, Logan Wilson is that safer bet, and that's probably how I would answer that question if you put a gun to my head. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. Uh, let's see here. Let's go, from, let's go to Dave Lennox in the YouTube. If Johnson beats out Bobby Hart for the starting right tackle, would the Bengals consider cutting Hart to free up cat room to claim another lineman on waivers or would it be too much of a cap hit? So I believe that Bobby Hart's contract, that just abysmal acquisition from last year in free agency, I believe that the majority of guaranteed money has already been exhausted here. He didn't have a great big signing bonus to his name anyways. I think that was only a handful of million and the base, um, total amount of money was just above 15, which was what, 
with some incentives raised it to like 18. But yeah, so if they cut him now before June 1st, they take on a dead cap hit of $3 million and the Bengals are not going to do, they don't normally do post June 1st cap hits. If they cut someone before then, I think that they just like to get dead money out immediately. Um, if they cut him after June 1st this year, they take on a dead cap hit of $2 million. And then next year, if they cut him after June 1st, it's $1 million. So based off what we see in this offseason, they, they cut guys like B.W. Webb, they cut John Miller, they cut Drake Kirkpatrick. They're not afraid to take on a handful of million dollars in dead money. They already have, I think, nine and a half on the books this year based off the guys that they cut. So I don't think it's too big of a, of a hit. They would save almost four, almost $5 million in, in cap space this year if they cut Bobby Hart. But even if Bobby Hart loses to Fred Johnson, I think they still like him enough to just keep him on the roster at, for depth purposes. For Because you have to remember, Bobby Hart was originally a guard coming out of Florida State. I think that's what he was drafted to be when he went to the Giants, who drafted him in the seventh round back in 2015. I think he came out the same year as Jameis Winston. So maybe he had that post-national championship hype to his name. That's why he ended up being drafted, because he just wasn't he just didn't have the athletic profile of a tackle. And we see that even today, five years into his career, it, it's, it's all dependent upon, you know, how quick and twitchy the, the edge rusher he goes up against. That's really dependent. That's, that's really the fact that, you know, decides what kind of day he's going to have. So even still, he doesn't have that, that great profile of an NFL tackle. He could theoretically slide back into right guard, which was one of his original positions. And if he has, if they think he has the ability to play three positions, both tackle spots, and that right guard spot that still needs depth, I think he's still a, a body that they're comfortable with who knows the system now for two years uh, starting under Jim Turner's offense, or at least in the offensive line. Um, and I think, you know, the, the the salary that he has, the contract that he has in total, it's not too outlandish to keep him on as, as a reserve who can, you know, play in, in emergency situations like that. So I don't think that they would cut him outright if he loses the starting job. I think they're most comfortable with him just as that, uh, you know, high quality reserve, if you will, because that's that's ultimately what he is now. He's 26. He's not going to change. He's not going to become that much of a, of a better player. So I, I, I'm not I'm not sure that they're gonna that they're gonna cut him just because uh, Fred Johnson uh, beat him out. So that's kind of where I'm at there. We also have another comment from in the article. What was the better quarantine docu series, The Tiger King or Last Dance? If I'm Joe Burrow, I probably say The Last Dance because I think. He said he didn't watch the Tiger King because he's against uh, animals in captivity, which the guy just has an answer for everything. I don't I, like for being a handful of months younger than me. He's just born to do this type of media stuff. I no, nothing's phasing that guy. It's honestly a great answer because honestly, I, I'm not sure how comfortable I would be if I was nicknamed the Tiger King or Joe Exotic, which is it seems like fate, but. I appreciate him taking the high road there. Tiger King was crazy and wacky in every way. I think I went into it believing that, you know, it's going to be some ridiculous nonsense in some parts of America that I would never even hope to rear my head at. But even still then with those expectations, I just, it was even crazier and stupider than I could have imagined. The last dance. I think it, I think it doesn't quite hit the quality level that OJ made in America was, which is the other 10 part series that ESPN released, I think four years ago, that to me will always reign supreme as like the top ESPN docuseries. Because for starters, like I, I wasn't even alive when 
you know, June 17th, 1994 happened. I was still an infant when the, the verdict came about. So I knew next to nothing about all of it, except just the basic stuff. I, I, I heard the, the, the phrase, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. I heard all of that, but it, just learning all of that was so fantastically interesting to me. And just, just the way that they set it all up. The last dance, I appreciate the structure of that as well. I know a lot of people complained that it went back and forth, you know, while progressing through the nineties, it went back to, you know, other relevant events, you know, in the past and like the eighties and the early nineties as, they were talking about things, you know, as as that dynasty progressed chronologically. But I like that structure. I, I like seeing the behind the scenes looks in the locker room. Jordan talking to the security guards and his teammates. I, I don't think that my opinion changed that much about Jordan and his teammates um, com- compared to maybe how other people think. I think for the most part, because it was th- this whole series had to be approved by Jordan himself that we may not have gotten the whole candid story about everything. And and that way it kind of loses its credibility to at least a certain extent, but I still appreciated all the, the inside information that that was given to that. So I think just based off my personal preference, I still would take that over Tiger King, but I mean, Tiger King was about as wild as, as I could have even imagined. So like that was, that was crazy. Um, going back to the YouTube comment section from Jeremy Hall, speaking of Rodney Anderson, as much as we're paying Geo, if Rodney or some other running back show up, is Geo expendable? This is the question I think that relates even more to Joe Mixon, in my opinion. Obviously, I think the plan is for Joe Mixon to be extended before the season happens. But what is the value of Joe Mixon, really, or Giovanni Bernard in that sense, if you have four or five running backs, including Jacques Patrick, who may or may not make the roster? who are, are quality and, and can take, you know, 10 to 15 snaps a game, it can give you about four yards of carry. Like the, the value of just having one talented running back in the NFL now is just so much lower than it was back in the, in the early and mid two thousands. If Rodney Anderson stays healthy along with Trayvon Williams, who in his own right is a talented back. If you have a, a quality rotation of guys that you dra- mostly drafted in the sixth round, you know, Gio was a second round pick so long ago, but Williams and Anderson, both six round picks, Patrick, as a guy that you sign off the XFL, you can find talented guys, quality guys through basically every avenue. You don't need to keep drafting these guys high in the draft. So, yeah, I do, I do think that Geo becomes expendable if both Williams and Anderson stay healthy and be as effective in the NFL as they were in college because the jump from college to the NFL from a running back is just it's just non-existent. It doesn't compare to other positions like quarterback and cornerback and wide receiver. It's so easy to manufacture yardage and effectiveness from these running backs provided that the offensive line is solid if it's improved. It's, if it's better than what it was last year, which I think the expectation is that it is, so as long as Jonah Williams is healthy and every other one of those young guys develops at least to some degree, it, it does make your veterans in, in Mixon and Geo expendable. If you already if you already give that deal to Mixon, then you have to utilize him. You have to make sure that he you know, exudes as much value as possible for that contract. But with, with Geo, yeah, like you, you're paying him, I think, at least somewhere like in the range of eight to 10 million more dollars over the next two years. And you have to somehow justify that contract. And if not, then he, he, he becomes a possible either trade candidate or a, or a cap casualty, because this is, this is how they should approach the running back position. Every somewhat, every few years or so you invest in these talented running backs late in the draft, because you can find running backs all throughout the draft in free agency off the street. You can find quality guys and make, you know, guys that you once thought were valuable 
and worthy of these contracts, you can make them expendable. So, yeah, I don't think Geo's spot is is particularly safe if if Anderson proves to be healthy. If Anderson proves to be effective, I think that, in effect, makes both him and Mixon expendable. So uh, I, that's a good question, and I think it's something that the Bengals have to basically ask themselves before they give Joe Mixon you know, a deal that's worth $10 million a year. Um, we're going to go back to a Geo question here from Tim, who, who emailed us. Uh, any chance of the Bengals moving Geo to a slot receiver or slot position this year? Seems he has lost a step on third downs. He's getting bull rushed every time. He's a Bengals fan from day one also, Tim wants to say. I still don't think that Geo has lost his effectiveness as a pass blocker. I still think he's effective there. He's definitely the best one they had. I do think that we have to give credit to Joe Mixon for be, being better in that regard than he was his first two years. I think we saw some slight improvements from him as a pass protector. But I think in this offense, often specifically, you have basically Joe Mixon being that Clyde Edwards Hilaire. So a guy who can either line up out wide or in the backfield as just an outlet receiver. Don't really worry about pass pass protection because that's not what Edwards Hilaire did. Leave the pass blocking duties to Geo. I think he, he can be fine as a receiver in those situations. I know there's other offensive schemes that could utilize his talents there, but you already have a guy like Mixon who can do the things that you imagine Gio could do. I don't think that you know Gio is at a point of his career where he can't handle pass protection duties because that's going to be important. You know when you're in when you're in these personnel groupings that you want Joe Burrow to be in, you can't always have him in, in empty sets. You need you sometimes need to have six man protections against you know third down blitz schemes or whatnot. So to have a guy like Gio who you feel comfortable out there leaving him on an island to take on an, an unblocked edge defender while you have maybe mixing on the field at the same time out wide running some bubble screens or running some, you know, quick slants or whatever, because you already have a guy in Mixon who can do that. I don't think that changes what you do with Bernard, especially if you just have a template of the running back that thrives in an offense that's led by this quarterback. Mixon becomes that Bernard's role. I don't think changes that much. And therefore I don't think his usage changes that much either. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. We had another email from Patrick. Should the Bengals go and get a veteran quarterback before the season starts? Not so much because they will need to help the team win games, but because they can mentor Joe Burrow a bit. Actually, just before this recording, Joe Flacco was signed by the New York Jets to back up Sam Darnold there. That leaves a quarterback room of, I think, Darnold, Flacco, David Fales, who was a guy from San Jose State a few years ago, and David Morgan, who they just drafted in the fourth round. Flacco seemed to make the most sense if they wanted a veteran quarterback because you know, you have a guy who won a who won a Super Bowl, who played in this division, who was a first round pick. He handled those pressures, and he managed to exceed the expectations that I think Joe Burrow uh, tried is going is going to be. You know, those those expectations that are now going to be set on Burrow. So that could have been a nice opportunity, and a nice mentorship for Burrow to have. But really, what's the what's really the value of that? How 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 are you going to put a price tag on that when you're taking away a roster spot from someone else who can contribute? The Bengals have been on record for saying that. The, the mentorship and the leadership aspect is not going to come from the backup quarterback spot. 
you you want to see what else Ryan Finley has in his second year. You like the upside that Jake Dolagala has. Those are your three quarterbacks you're going to roster. And then you have three coaches and Zach Taylor, Brian Callahan, and Dan Pitcher, who have all been quarterbacks in their lifetime, who have all coached quarterbacks in their lifetime. At least this is the first year that Dan Pitcher is going to be the quarterback's coach. Those guys are all not even 40 years old yet. And typically you would think that a veteran backup at the quarterback spot is somewhere in the range, age range of like 35 to 40. So it's not exactly traditional compared to what you see, you know, in like the form of a Josh McCown or, or somebody like that, who was also, I think, still in the market. I think there, it's just more wise to use a roster spot elsewhere when you get the same value of a backup veteran quarterback who can offer leadership to a guy like Burrow, who in all honesty, I mean, we're going to get to this question next regarding Burrow's age, but like Burrow's going to turn 24 this year. Ryan Finley turned 25 next year. They're, for having guys who aren't that experienced, they're, they are still on the older side. It's not like you have guys who are 21, 22 years old in this position group. And again, you have coaches, you have multiple coaches who have experience playing and coaching that position. I think anything that you would expect Joe Flacco to be able to, to give advice on, aside from obviously you know going to the playoffs and winning the Super Bowl, which I think some people would still value having a guy like that. I think whatever you would, aside from that, whatever you would value in a backup quarterback, you're already going to have in the coaching staff to an extent. So I don't, I don't think it's a big priority for them. And I also think it's, it shouldn't be a big priority at all. So we had a, a text from Danny from London over the pond. Hi, hi, Danny. He was asking Joe Burrow is a little older than Lamar Jackson and only a year younger than Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson who were both drafted three years ago now. Uh, how will Burrow's age entering the league as a rookie manifest itself in the short, medium term? It's interesting because Joe Burrow is actually young enough where if you look back from like the 1983 draft class, which was like the, the pinnacle of quarterback draft classes, the vast majority of successful quarterbacks in the long term are usually 23 and other. You rarely see quarterbacks who are as old as Joe Burrow turn into you know multiple all-pro quarterbacks typically basically in every position the younger you are and the more talented you are at that age it bodes well for me for your long-term output for your long-term potential so joe burrow is not exactly he's not like ryan finley who was 24 when he was drafted and turned 25 in december so from a long-term perspective i think joe burrow is just inside the the age range where you're comfortable that he still has room to grow but for the short term, I do think it definitely helps. I, I think if you have a guy like Lamar who's 21 when he's drafted and then develops in, in his 22 and 23-year-old seasons, that's like the dream, right? You have multiple years of experience when you're the same age as a guy who just got drafted by, by your rival team. With Burrow, he has two years of starting experience as a college quarterback, but he also has five years of being a quarterback in general in, in, in a college system, albeit three years at a whole other school with a whole other system. But – yeah, he's not just a he's gonna be he's gonna have wide eye rookie moments. That's that's not gonna not happen. He's still a rookie quarterback, and mo the majority of those, even in today's age, they're gonna struggle compared to league averages based on the years. But yeah, I think it does help for him to be a little bit on the older side. I think he has more leadership experience than other rookie quarterbacks who have to start in their first year. That's that's gonna be the key thing. You're gonna have warts with Joe Burrow. It's not gonna be perfect, it's not gonna be anywhere close to what you saw in 2019. If you want to say it's going to be between 2018 and 2019, that, I think that's a fine and fair assessment. But the, the, the jump from college to the NFL is, is big, no matter how old you are, no matter what your experience is. And, age, and, and being on the oldest side doesn't always help you. Like 
Marcus Hunt was 27 years old, and albeit he didn't have a lot of college experience, but you know, he found out he, that he was just as athletic and powerful as NFL guys. And if you didn't have the mental fortitude to, to handle that, at least in your early, early years, you weren't going to amount to anything, regardless of how much older you were compared to other rookies. So it, it helps in a certain way. It, it helps in his long term as well, because he's not exactly on the older, older side for the position. But at the same time, he's still a rookie and he's still going to go through some of those warts that you would see even with guys on the younger side. We also had a text from Steve Johnson from Seattle. He was asking about schematically, what are the Bengals trying to do on defense? What is their identity? And there's also a comment. There was also a comment early on about um, if the Bengals were going to do more exotic things from a, from a, a defensive perspective, if they're going to have more bare fronts or if they're going to do a more disguised blitzes. And honestly, like that's not anything really new. Like we saw that in the Mike Zimmer days, we saw that in the Paul Gunther days, and we even saw that in, in a certain extent last year in Lou and Arumo's first defense. I do think with the question of bare fronts, I think we could see a, a, a slight increase in there because now you have two guys who you were confident in at, at your three technique spots. You have, imagine this, you have Geno Atkins and DJ Reader as your three techs. Now remember, DJ Reader was more of a B-gap defender, more of a, a pure three technique last year with the Houston Texans than he was as a pure nose tackle. He has the ability to push the pocket from that technique spot. And now you have now you can pair him up with Geno Atkins in these certain situations. Josh Tupo becomes your true zero tech, your true nose, the guy who lines it up right on the on the nose of the center. Two, three techniques and a, a pure nose is what makes up the base of a bare front. Then you have two, five techniques where you have two stand-up uh, defensive ends. Either, either one really works. I remember this one specific example. Uh, when the Bengals played the Jets a few a few years ago, you had Michael Johnson, Carlos Dunlap, I, actually standing up in in those certain situations when you had Geno Atkins and, and a couple other interior defenders making up the interior of your, of your bare front. But now I think you're more comfortable with the quality and, and depth of your personnel on the interior to run those run those formations because they, at the end of the day, if if your defense tackle is getting blown off the ball, and you know you have your linebackers playing a little bit off in those certain situations, you're going to get gassed up front and your defensive ends are in a position where they can get out leveraged from the inside. If you have guys like Atkins and Reader who can hold their own at the point of attack, a guy like Tupo who can maybe two gap in those situations, then you have two linebackers and Jermaine Pratt and either Josh Bynes or Logan Wilson who can basically stack and shed from those second level blockers. That makes the bare front a little bit more effective because now you're able to utilize that whenever you feel as comfortable with, depending on what, what type of formation and personnel the offense is running in those certain situations. But you have the personnel to handle it and be stout at run defense. And also, it creates some pass rushing opportunities. You can run some stunts. You can run some loops. You can basically have Tupo and redirect his decoys as you have Atkins looping around. You can do stuff with Sam Hubbard from an, from an off-ball stance. You can have him lined up as an off-ball linebacker and basically sugar, sugar gapping up the B-gap or maybe even the A-gap in those certain situations. You have a lot more versatility and options with this defensive front for the Bengals now, provided that most of them are healthy. I think that's where Akeem Davis-Gaither comes into play because he has experience as a blitzer. Logan Wilson and Jermaine Pratt were both experienced blitzers in college. At least we saw a little bit of, of that in the preseason with Pratt. But yeah, you have a lot more options with, with this defense. I think from an identity standpoint now, I think it's still that 3-4 in base, but you're still having four down linemen, two linebackers for the most for the most part because that's, that's just what every defense looks like now. Offenses are not changing. They're not 
going away from the direction that they're heading to right now. They're progressing in the same way, and that's just not slowing down. So you still need, you know, guys who can play. In, you still need seven guys who can play in space, and you can't really afford to have just five down linemen out there for the majority of the time. Even though, you know, if, if that's the strength of, of your defense and your defensive line, you still need guys who can drop back and play coverage for, you know, fifty or sixty snaps a game. So the the, the identity is still just your four, two, five. Cause that's just the nature of the NFL now. But in those base situations, I guess if you want to talk about when they play in the AFC North and they're facing run heavy teams, yeah, you're still, ha- you're still having those three, four multiple looks where you have guys who can line up in two point stances and three point stances on the edge. And you have depth on the interior and genome reader, which now you can afford to go in four, three and three, four looks. So let's see here. Let's go back to the comments section. Hmm. Ah, we got one from Jay Cook. Uh, TJ Hushmanzada raved about working with John Ross and his speed and quickness combined as a match, so I hope they stop trying to use him as a deep ball receiver. That should not be his main route. That was one of the one things that bothered a lot of us about Ross in his rookie year was that it, it just seemed like, like Marvin Lewis had probably his own opinion on Ross in general. Maybe he didn't want him on the team at all, but... It just seemed like that's all they really cared about was just his deep speed and just his ability on go routes and nine routes. When in reality, a lot of his production at Washington came on some of the short concepts and also in the red zone. That's where we saw him in 2018 kind of surprise us a lot because you don't get seven touchdowns being that limited of receiver by accident. Uh, His ability to separate in those quick and short situations, especially in condensed situations near the end zone and the goal line, it's impressive for for a guy who you, you may not think that would be his strength. That was the thing that pissed a lot of us off in 2017 was that he was just a decoy running deep and then Andy Dalton would overthrow him and then you would talk about chemistry issues and whatnot. Why isn't he getting involved in the offense? Why is he not being used as a full-fledged receiver? Now, when you have when you talk about five guys, including A.J. Green, Tyler Boyd, um, Ross himself, T. Higgins, and on Tate, who you're comfortable going in and out of the game, you know, now Ross becomes, I think, a more effective receiver because you use him a little bit less. Because maybe you still use him when you're in your base 11 personnel, but you rotate him in and out more with Higgins and Tate. And maybe in some situations you have Ross off the field with the other four guys on the field. You have a more diverse wide receiver room. And you have guys like Higgins and even to a certain extent Tate who can win down the field on, on those vertical routes where you don't need to have Ross do that all the time. And you can use him more underneath more. You can use him on those short slants and bubble screens and, you know, on, underneath routes, getting him over the middle on those like mesh concepts, whatever, create space for him underneath. Utilize his yards after catch ability. When, the, when he has the ball in his hands, he's, he's a dangerous mismatch in the open field. Like we saw that against Seattle when, whenever, when in the few times that he actually caught the ball, he ended up with two touchdowns, and he had a lot of yards after catch the game. There was one situation where he actually dropped it, and had he would have hold on to it, he would have had like a 60-yard touchdown. He would have had three touchdowns that game. It's not hard to get Ross involved in the game. They made it a lot harder than it needed to be in his first three years because they just weren't sure what to do with him, and I don't think they I think they realized that he just wasn't the greatest match or greatest fit with the quarterback that they had. But in this offense now, I think when you have a quarterback who specializes in pinpoint accuracy and placement, and into in those anticipatory throws, if you have a guy who is a mismatch in the open field, who's faster than anybody else on defense, 
just getting the ball in his hands at all costs is is a priority. But you're also in a, in a sense where you don't have to use him like a, like like a traditional receiver because you have four other guys who can take those responsibilities away from him. So it's a question of what is Ross's true value now? Like, how do you pay a guy like that? How do you utilize that guy in future situations? And it's something that they just have to ask themselves as they see this offense progress right now. Let's see here. I think we're going to go back to another email. Nope, we already had all of this. I didn't even realize I was talking for 40 minutes, but I think I need some water. Let's see here. All right, John, will you smoke a cigar on YouTube if Burrow wins a Super Bowl with the Bengals? Will you light up? Yeah, I would smoke a cigar on YouTube if Joe Burrow didn't win a Super Bowl with the Bengals. I'm not. <laughs> Lung cancer, unfortunately, runs in my family. That's why my mom um, basically stopped my dad from uh, smoking them basically ever. But he was kind of a cigar guy as well. Chad Johnson's a cigar guy. I'm sure he's going to. Did you guys see that? It was um, Ch- Chad Johnson got a thank you letter from Katie Blackburn and the rest of the front office for basically a token of appreciation for being the ambassador that he was this offseason. And they sent him a thank you letter and I think some customized Bengal cigars. So whenever Chad Johnson goes to work with Joe Burrow this offseason with the rest of his receivers, I wonder if both of them are going to light up a cigar. I, 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 I want to take this opportunity now to just talk about Chad Johnson because we've written about him a lot on the website recently just for the things that he's done not only for being the hype man that he is that he's always been but i think it's just been easier for him this year because the Bengals are actually doing stuff that warrants that ambassadorial efforts from him um whether it was talking about joe burrow from the early onset of the offseason i believe our, our own our cj Cincy jungle alumnus Rebecca Toback basically interviewed him and TJ Kusmanjada around Super Bowl week. And then when the drafting of Burrow came, he sent all those tweets. And then when they drafted T Higgins, he was even more hyped. He's just, that's always been the kind of guy that he is. And I think there was a lot of people, even Bengals fans themselves that maybe weren't exactly comfortable with some of his antics, but I think he's always been that, that type of supportive guy. And it's, and it's really nice that the Bengals now are showing that appreciation because I think 10 years ago that the, like sending a letter to a former player, thanking them for stuff like this, that's just not, it's just not who they are. And I think this offseason has kind of transformed a lot about what we perceive them to be. We actually interviewed Max Montoya on DNH sports a couple of days ago. And you guys can check that out on our podcast channel. And I asked him about what does he think about the lack of honoring past players and the lack of ring of honor. And he was straight candid with us. He said that, you know, it, it does hurt a little bit that we poured our, our blood, sweat, and tears into this organization. And the only thing that they've really given back to us was that 50th anniversary spectacle where they, you know, brought these guys in for a game or, you know, however many, you know, the, the eight games, home games that they had. And, you know, they brought him back and you know, it was kind of like a reunion or whatever. But, you know, aside from just events like that or just that one event in at least this team's history, you have you have nothing for guys like me who are just 23 years old. You have nothing in Paul Byrne Stadium or in, in anywhere in the Bengals facility that that showcases the, the the players of this of this past, and it's a hard way for a fan base to grow beyond just the generation that already exists. And a guy like Johnson 
who just made the Bengals relevant from a national perspective, even though they still didn't have the success beyond just winning a division every couple of years. That was special for a guy like me. And I think the athletic had a survey where they said, who's your favorite Bengal of all time? And Johnson had the overwhelming majority of votes. And that doesn't surprise me because guys like me, we grew up loving Chad Johnson more for just the fact that he caught touchdowns or whatever, but you know, his general personality, the fact that he sent Pepto-Bismol to Cleveland Browns members of the secondary before they played him, like the the list in his locker room regarding the, the cornerbacks that had to cover him, just th- that charisma and personality was just unheard of for a, a franchise that was eventually ranked in the bottom of and the entire American uh, franchise rankings. So to see them show and display gratitude in the same affection and the same um, degree that Johnson has displayed his ambassadorial efforts towards the franchise. It really meant a lot to me. And it really shows, I think the growth of this franchise and just, you know, like th- this off season was unprecedented for them. Like they did a lot more that reflected what a true franchise in the NFL looks like nowadays. And I think everything's starting to ma- ma- maybe wake up, I guess with, with them. And who knows if that expands upon this year, who knows if that, you know, continues into the future, but it, it was it was nice to see a nice change of pace. <laughs> Let's see here. What was the last good Madden game, Jason Von Stein? <sighs> Madden like Madden twelve. I think Madden ten had like the like the brand new engine or whatever. And that was when I think gameplay was at its peak for what the technology was. It seems like every every year since then, it's basically been the same thing. I remember like Madden 2016 had like crazy Odell Beckham Jr. catches. That was like a feature in the game and basically ruined it. And I didn't even consider buying it at that point. I think I bought like a Madden after that and it was a little bit better, but it just seems like the same copy and paste game. I think they're now agreeing to... A, f- a further five-year partnership with EA Sports. So that's really disappointing. I really, uh, Frank Rudolph from Facebook, I really believe Joe Burrow will make the entire team better and the little issues we had in the past will disappear more and more as time goes on. That's that's literally why we wanted a quarterback drafted in the past three years. That's why we, we boffed, we goffed at... Marvin Lewis saying every position is on the table except for quarterback in 2017, watching Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson go to other teams. And those two elevate the teams that they're on, even though they're already talented. It's why the addition of Lamar Jackson 2018 made so much sense with a guy like Andy Dalton already on the roster to groom him for the opportunity to elevate this team. It's why even last year, like the, the opportunity to draft a guy like Dwayne Haskins wasn't as laughable as anybody thought. Like, a quarterback is not going to solve all your all of your issues if the rest of your team is bad. Like, that's never been the case. With having a quarterback that can be an asset, regardless of his surroundings, that can still be effective and still put you in positions to succeed week in and week out, that is invaluable. And it's it's something that the, that the Bengals haven't had since the peak days of Carson Palmer for 15 years. And we wonder why you know, this team has struck out in the postseason for a handful of times since then, it's because if one thing goes wrong, if one injury happens, or if one play goes awry, then the whole thing is kaput. That, that, that's not that's not an issue for a team that has a quarterback that, that they can re- rely on in those situations. 
That's 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 the impact that I think Joe Burrow has the most because he's not a quarterback where you say, you know, he needs five good starters on the offense line. He needs a diverse receiving core. He needs a deep threat in John Ross. They need to add to continue to add these pieces around. They, they need the offense to be perfect. That was the mindset that a lot of Bengals fans attached themselves to in the early days of Andy Dahl when they still believed that he had the capabilities of being a true franchise quarterback. Everything had to be perfect. The situation had to be flawless. And if there was one injury, if there was one deficiency, if there was one thing that went awry, everything would go kaput because you wouldn't be able to trust the quarterback for masking those situations. That is the difference between Joe Burrow and any other and any other solution they could have had a quarterback this offseason, especially Andy Dalton, especially whatever Cam Newton is now. That is that is the overwhelming impact of adding Joe Burrow to the offseason. Paul Bland is asking, what are your thoughts on the complete Bengals history going back further from Ocho? I'm not, I'm not asking that question. You, you, you besmirched Chad Johnson's nickname. I refuse to ask it. What the hell is NFL fever? NFL fever is the best football game ever on Xbox. I have not heard that. I remember those like NFL, it's like a 2K game, like NFL All Pro or some shit like that. 2008 had John Elway on the cover. I remember like watching the video of that and the gameplay was really good, but I never played it because I think even back then I was a slave to Madden. Daryl Mullen is asking, what is going on with Billy Price? Is he a bust or will he produce this year? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know he's not a good football player now, and I know that the injuries that he suffered the past two years have definitely not helped. It's it's the argument of like the expectations were for him were already too high. He was never the prospect that he was touted up to be as a first round guy. You can go back to you know my my work from that year, or at least my tweets from that year. I was never a, a guy that that thought of Billy Price as being the best center in the class or better than Frank Ragnar or better than James Daniels. He was a guy that I thought if he was drafted in rounds two in like, you know, around round three to be a guy who can compete for a job in the interior and just had those specific expectations put upon him. I think it would have been better for him, for him to be thrusted into the lineup already with, you know, the, 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 the pectoral issue that kept him out of offseason activities it didn't really do him any favors because unfortunately it, it showed up a lot in his tape in Ohio state. Like if you're getting pushed back that much in the run game against big 10 defensive tackles, it, it should have meant something. And like his high plays, like he, he finished guys to the ground and he stood his own in pass protection for the most part, but it, it just wasn't as impressive as it should have been for a guy who was this bona fide first round prospect at this position. And I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how much weight there is to, you know, the Bengals panicking about Frank Ragnow, you know, going off one pick before and then them just taking the, the best guy available. I do think that they valued Billy Price that highly. There's no way that they draft him 21st overall if they don't think that he's a player that's worth at least a mid first round grade. I think that's where they ended up grading him. I don't think that they reached to get him in their minds. The, the problem itself was the evaluation itself. It went beyond just 
his 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 injury that offseason, the fact that they wouldn't be able to they, to have him in most of the offseason, I just don't think that he was that caliber of a, of a prospect. Now, as far as this year goes, it doesn't seem like there's a there's a starting job waiting for him. It seems like he's already been outcasted as just a versatile backup. He's too expensive right now to cut. I think that if they cut him either before or after June 1st, they would take on more dead money than what they would save from a, from a salary cap perspective. So I think from that standpoint, he's safe to make the team again because he's only in his third year. And again, they still value the fact that he has played center before. But no, I, his opportunities have been all but evaporated. And it'll come down to the, the health and the continued development of Michael Jordan at left guard. Because if he stinks it up like he did in the beginning of last year, then you have a situation where Price is thrown back out there. And maybe this time he's more ready for it. Maybe he's fully recovered from the foot injury that he had last year and he becomes a player that we've never seen before. But unfortunately, the lows of Billy Price are not too surprising if you realize the type of player that he was coming out of college. And it's disappointing because I think he was a better guard than he was a center at Ohio State. And yeah, it's... The, the injuries have definitely not helped, though. So it, it sucks. Randolph is also asking, will Fred Johnson beat out Bobby Hart, and how good can he be in the future? I think if he's given a chance to do so, he can. I think the the two games that he played last year against the Dolphins and the Browns, it's not the greatest sample size, obviously, but he at least showed more in those two games from a technical standpoint and from an athleticism standpoint, then Bobby Hart has shown for the past two years that he's been with the Bengals. Size-wise, he's bigger, 6'7", 320, but he moves like a much smaller man. And again, the standards of comparing him to Bobby Hart, it's not, it's not that hard to beat out. But you just watch him and the intricacies of his tape. It's just so much more impressive than a guy like Hart, who is still, his hands are just all over the place. There's some power there, but there's no functional athleticism. There's no functional strength to his game. He's got the right mindset, and I think that's why Jim Turner likes him. And that might be why he also likes Fred Johnson too, but I just think you have a better base of a talented tackle in Fred Johnson than you do in a guy like Bobby Hardy. It just depends on how much of an opportunity they're willing to give him. I think if you have a situation where you keep Fred Johnson left tackle and you have Jonah Williams at right tackle, that, that could also work in my opinion. I think... Nowadays, right tackle has become an even more important position on the offensive line than left tackle because you're on average, you're facing more talented pass rushers going up against right tackles than you are against left tackles. The stigma of having or the perception of having a talented blindside blocker, it, it still reigns supreme because you, you still have quarterbacks who, who occasionally get blindsided, but that itself doesn't happen that often. You know, Joe Theismann was 30 something years ago. And even then, that wasn't purely just he was in the, he was in the clean pocket and he just get blindsided by Lawrence Taylor. The whole pocket was collapsing around him. The the perception of having your left tackle be better than your right tackle doesn't exist anymore. You need two quality right tackles. And if Fred Johnson happens to be one of them, I don't it's not outlandish for him to play either spot. That's not gonna happen. Jonah Williams is their left tackle, and I think that's that plan is, is set in stone now. That's been the plan since they drafted him. But if Fred Johnson is better at left tackle than he is at right tackle, and he's one of their two best guys, and he's clearly better than Bobby Hart, that in itself should not be out of the question. Robert Obrecht from Facebook is asking what position groups 
battles are you most looking forward to seeing? Cornerback is honestly up there in terms of not from a starter perspective, but how the rest of that position group is going to fill out. You obviously have Trey Waynes, William Jackson the third, and Mackenzie Alexander is your starting three. You have Darius Phillips kind of being there as your fourth guy who can play on the outside and inside. But I don't honestly know how the rest of that position is going to go, going to fill out. You have Winston Rose and Tony Brown, who you signed in the offseason. They're both talented. Winston Rose specifically had, I think, nine interceptions with the CFL last year. So th- those are ball skills that they never dreamed of having with Drake or Patrick. Um, they didn't draft a cornerback this year. They signed one in, in college for agency and a guy in Isaiah Swan, who I think at Dartmouth, an Ivy League school, he – set the school record for 17 interceptions. I think he had eight in one year, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's a couple other guys whose name was escaping me. LaShawn Sims, they also signed in Tennessee. He's, I think, in line to be the Tony McRae replacement because he has a lot of special teams experience. I think he had, God, he had experience playing with one defensive defensive coach, but his name is escaping me at this point. Um, But there's a lot... It's not a lot. It's not a lot of talent on the bottom end of, of that position group, but I think aside from the top four, the the fifth or sixth guys are basically anybody's guesses right now. And it's a position group that normally doesn't look too hot in training camp in, in the preseason because those situations typically favor the offense and the receivers in general. But it's a position. It's a position group that saw so much turnover this offseason and has so little future stability going forward because not a lot of guys are under contract beyond 2020 William Jackson being one of them and how he progresses in a contract year is also going to be interesting. So the battle for, to round out that position is going to be, it's definitely going to have my attention. And I guess you can also say the same for maybe safety, maybe even tight end. Yeah. You know, position, positions where we know who are going to be the main contributors come September in the fall, but how the rest of those position groups fill out based off the talent that they, that they have, that's going to be interesting for me. All right, guys, we have been on for about an hour. I don't think Anthony is going going to come back. Um, I'll be 100% honest with you. I have no control over how to stop this thing. Um, if you have any more questions for me, now is the time to ask because I think we need to maintain this at least to about an hour, maybe under an hour. All right, that's a lot of dead air. I'm not comfortable with that much dead air, but hopefully Anthony can edit this out. Thank you guys for submitting your questions. I know it wasn't exactly ideally how this goes. We like to have a back and forth situation, but this is this is a hard job, man. Like I, I do not envy <laughs> Anthony ever doing this alone. I, I can see why he never didn't want to do this alone originally. Um, but yeah, this was this was fun. This was a new experience for me. So thank you guys for taking it easy on me. I'm going to probably down about a gallon of water, but thank you guys for joining in. Um, we'll be back next week with our regular program show Wednesday. God, outros are hard. Until then, um, keep sending us in questions because we're going to keep doing these almost every week, maybe every every once every other two weeks. Um, but, oh, yeah, our phone line is always open at this time. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to answer calls because I don't have that phone or that number or access to it. But yeah, keep sending us emails, keep tweeting at us. We want the Twitter account to grow at Bengals OBI. Um, but yeah, we'll be back next week with our regular program. So we'll see you guys then.